The scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even as a mischief maker. Yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace. But glorify God because you bear this name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the end for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? Therefore, let those suffering in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Evan. Let me add my welcome to Donna's, uh, especially to those of you who might be here with us for the first time. It's a joy to welcome you to National Church, National Presbyterian Church, and also again to extend a welcome to those of you who are joining us online from wherever you may be. It's always great to see those of you who can be here in person, and uh, as we rub shoulders together and worship together, we have a sense of the Lord's movement among us, but whether you are near or far, we are glad to be together under the leadership of the Holy Spirit this morning as we seek to offer to the Lord the worship of which he is so worthy. It's been a few years now, maybe seven or eight, I can't remember exactly, but I know that I will never forget the scene of 21 Egyptians kneeling on a beach in Libya. They had left their small village in Egypt and gone to Libya in search of work. And now their lives were to be required of them, not for any crime they had committed, but only because they were Christians. Their last words were simply, help us, Jesus. In fact, Christians have been persecuted since Jesus was led to the cross. We have the account, for example, of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And tradition tells us that all of the disciples, with the exception of John, died martyrs' deaths. The first large-scale persecution of Christians began in 64 under the notorious Emperor Nero who scapegoated Christians and blamed them for the great fire that swept through the city of Rome. It wasn't long after that before it became a capital offense to profess Christ in any public way. Other more systematic purges followed in 155 and 235. And in 250, another emperor, Decius, in an act reminiscent of the yellow star of David that was required of Jews in mid-century Germany. 
Christians were forced to come out into the open and kneel before a pagan god and make a vow in front of a city official. Think of that. What if you as a Christian were to get a notice today to show up tomorrow at Friendship Heights post, post office and there you would be met by a number of city officials who would expect you to kneel and make obeisance to a pagan god upon the cost of your life. In 257, there was yet another persecution, but even more ferocious in its effect. And yet, in spite of the atrocities, these atrocities, the witness of Christians was profound. We have a treasured set of letters from two early Christian leaders, Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp, who you might remember I mentioned a few weeks ago when we were thinking together about slavery and the slave Onesimus and Philemon. Ignatius and Polycarp wrote letters as they were on their way to be martyred. We have those. Polycarp was about to die and he thanked God for the honor of being allowed to die for Christ. Ignatius even implored his friends not to intervene on his behalf. If it were me in his shoes, I would be calling everybody I knew with any influence to try to get off the hook. But Ignatius implored his friends not to intervene on his behalf, but rather to pray that he would face death with confidence in Christ. He understood his own death as an opportunity to participate in the sufferings of Christ. These first and second century persecutions were no aberration. Many others have faced arrest and worse because of their faith in Christ. In fact, it was the 20th century that saw the greatest number of Christians killed in any century simply because they were Christians. And we know that today in many places in the world, violent persecution still exists and not just because of Islamic extremism. North Korea, China, parts of India, Myanmar. These are just a few countries that spring to my mind where I, when I think of places where Christians today, this morning, are placing their lives at some risk as they gather together with other believers to honor the name of Christ. But we don't have to look overseas to feel the challenge of Christian faithfulness, do we? Our lives are not at risk, to be sure. But we feel the challenge nonetheless, I think. Perhaps you are a high school student or a university student here this morning who has felt pressured by friends into actions or attitudes that left you feeling stuck. You don't want to appear holier than thou, and at the same time, you want to live a life that Christ has led you to. Several of my friends in Durham who are medical practitioners have discussed with me the pressure that they are under to participate in methods of treatment that put them in conflict in their conscience. Some of you in the room are lawyers this morning. You live in a vocational gray zone day to day where sometimes you find yourself advocating for a client who you know without a shadow of a doubt is not innocent. Policymakers, 
civil servants often find themselves in a conflict of heart and mind and we have to ask ourselves what impact do the compromises that we make in the course of a day's work have on our Christian convictions? Peter's words, you see, are no less relevant to us than they were to those churches in Asia Minor in the first century. If we are members of the church of Jesus Christ, if we take seriously what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and participants in the church in this outpost of the kingdom of God, wherever we are meeting, if we, in the words of my friend Doug Webster, if we own Christian identity, if we express Christian devotion and practice Christian obedience, we will feel the challenge of following Christ in our world. To us, as well as to those first century Christians, Peter is writing and he says to us, don't be surprised at the trials that will come upon you to test you. And we need testing, don't we? I know I certainly do. Because it is instinctive as we think about God in our natural human curiosity, it is instinctive to want a God who makes life easier, not harder. That's our first impulse. In our malformed, fallen instincts, we want a God who will make life work better for us, who will make the rain fall and the crops grow, who will give us comfort and prosperity and pleasure. And give it to us now, by the way, none of this delayed gratification nonsense, and certainly none of this suffering business, if you please. How many of us, how many of us have been tempted to walk away from God because we made an uncomfortable Lord, you'll protect me, or you'll protect the ones that are dear to me. You'll keep us from suffering and hardship. It's in the testing. It's in the testing that we find out the truth about the depth of our Christian commitments. And if we're willing to face the truth, we will also discover our idols, those places in our lives where our allegiance actually, in fact, is greater than to the Lord that we profess. Our golden calves, if you will, whether those are pleasure or financial success or prestige or reputation, whatever it may be. Or maybe our idols are better defined by what we want to avoid in life. Protect me, Lord, from having my name scattered across social media in a slanderous way. Or perhaps we just want to avoid suffering and hardship and go about our business, put our heads down on the pillows at the end of the day, and go, Whew, nothing too bad happened today. I often wonder, in fact, if the primary driving purpose of our culture in our day is to do whatever it takes to avoid suffering. We no longer seem to be able to have a conversation publicly about what is good and true, about is what is worth pursuing. We're even inclined to, uh, not inclined to explore larger questions of meaning and purpose if we need to suffer in pursuit of those things 
And it is an odd thing. It seems that people will pay you no heed. They'll let you be about your business until you actually make a commitment or come to a conviction about something. And when you do, then suddenly you become a target of interest. If you know Lewis's screw tape letters, you'll know that this is a dominant theme. People are not of interest to Satan until they actually try to get serious about their life in Christ. But let me give you an example from my own life. I had a friend who was my roommate freshman year and sophomore year. I was a lapsed Protestant. He was a lapsed Jew. Neither of us were particularly passionate about anything much except ACC basketball. We were comfortable friends until the Lord grabbed me by the scruff of my neck as a sophomore and claimed my life. And suddenly, my roommate, to my roommate, I became a person of suspicion. Even though I was not badgering him or in any way trying to force my newfound convictions on him. It was almost as if simply because I had come to some conclusions about what was important to me, it felt threatening to him. Because I had found my way to something that was beginning to give my life shape and purpose and direction, it became a challenge, almost as if I'd thrown down the gauntlet, as if I'd said, well, what do you think about that? When I'd done nothing of the sort. It was all a little confusing to me. I hadn't expected that. I was just excited that because of Christ, life was beginning to take shape for me. And yet somehow this became objectionable to my friend. Leslie Newbegin, who's an extraordinary, was in his day an extraordinary pastor and theologian, points out that this resistance happens not just between persons, but in a larger, broader cultural form. He writes, Whenever the gospel is preached, we also see new ideologies appear. Secular humanism, nationalism, Marxism, movements which offer the vision of a new age, an age freed from all the ills that beset human life, but on other terms than the Christian gospel. Once the gospel is preached, says Newbegin, and once there is, pay attention to this, once there is a community that lives by that gospel, then other would-be messiahs begin to appear, unquote. Now, Peter isn't surprised by this development. He writes, don't be surprised, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Instead, glorify God. What gave Peter the confidence to speak so forthrightly to this people who were in a crisis. Well, he lives out of a, a threefold matrix, if you will, a way of seeing and living in the world that's shaped by three convictions. The first is the resurrection of Christ. Remember, 
that second paragraph in the first chapter of this letter of 1 Peter that I asked you all to memorize? We're going to have the children memorize it and lead us in it next week. According to his great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Right from the beginning, Peter is saying it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us the confidence and the courage to withstand the hardship that inevitably comes as a result of professing faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then here in our text this morning come the other two convictions. The coming glory of our sovereign Lord who will make all things right. And the Holy Spirit who is present with us in the moment today. So the past the present and the future, all bear witness the conquering of death in the resurrection and ascension of Christ, the Spirit of God at work in you and me today, and the assurance of his return. These three convictions give us the confidence to, as Peter writes, entrust our souls to our faithful God. And so we come to see, as a result, we see our suffering in a new way. As the necessary byproduct of coming to know and to love and to follow the one who brings life out of death and who is the only one who is really worthy of your worship. We need not seek suffering. It will find us. It is instead, though, the result of the friction that comes from our responding to God's invitation. The friction that results from living unto God, according to God's will, in a world that, perhaps unwittingly, is deeply committed, nonetheless, to other gods. The conflict, which we do not seek, is nevertheless inevitable. And to run from it, or to seek to hide from it, is actually to weaken us in our ability to respond faithfully. But in fact, the suffering itself can become a laboratory that Jesus Christ, by his mercy, uses to make us more like him. You'll remember, perhaps, some of you, that I was called away a few weeks ago to bury a friend of mine, Gabrielle, who had lived for decades with mitochondrial disease, a devastating, progressive illness. And I'm taking the liberty to do something this morning that I wouldn't usually do. But I want to read to you a portion of her husband's remarks which he spoke at her memorial service. One of the things our culture lacks, he writes, is good models for dying well. We tend to think of a good death as one that is fast, without suffering, over and done with. And there are good reasons to think this way, among them our desire to avoid pain and loss, and humiliating bodily dysfunction. We'd like to avoid a slow but sure demolition of 
most of what we've put our energy into while alive. In this view, the best death should not cause us to suffer, and it should be quick. But there is another point of view, one that would have us consider the virtue of a long death. Surprisingly, it was the dominant view for a very long time in the Christian tradition because it allows you to do things that human beings both need and long to do, such as evaluate your life, reconcile with other people, turn your heart to God to draw closer to him and receive his forgiveness and tenderness. A longer death gives you the chance to become a deeper person, to see the human lot for what it really is, to move more in the rhythms of our true being, to push away the distractions from the center and to focus instead on the center, on what humans really need to be about. And then to aim for those things as you make your way to your end. Gabrielle's suffering, he writes, was long, profound, cruel, and inexplicable. And yet for all of that, there were remarkable gifts hidden in that suffering. Gifts for her, for our son, and for me. And ultimately for anyone and everyone who discovers in Gabrielle's life a way to see light in the darkness and to go on in the face of what assails us. In fact, the gifts were so rich that I struggle to describe them. We receive the gift of focus, for example, which is the ability not to look around all the time wondering what we should do next from among the many options. But it is the habit of looking at the moment in which you live and trying to see it for what it is. We receive the gift of knowing that life is short and that nothing can alter that fact, which means once you accept this truth, that you can see each day as a chance to make the best of it since you only have a few of them. We discovered the gift of forgetting about stupid relational squabbles since you can actually grow past them on a path of forgiveness. So strangely, what we experienced in conjunction with our isolation and decline and pain and loss was a radiant happiness together, an intimacy in our family, and a profoundly practical love. Here's the truth. We could never have received those gifts apart from her suffering. The gifts don't come by themselves nor do they come without preparation and practice. Gifts in the midst of suffering were those that came out of a life of developing Christian habits. Gabrielle rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed what it was to be a Christian, how to live gently and peaceably, how to be patient, how to be kind, how to trust in the face of unanswered questions or opaquely answered prayers how to be grateful for little things, how to show self-control. There was a strange inverse relation between the destruction of Gabrielle's body over time 
and the flowering of her soul. She grew into something by God's power that was truly astonishing. And I have been in awe of what she became. Even as the grim reaper stood menacingly on our doorstep, trying to get in, Gabrielle showed us why there is hope nonetheless, why there is joy in spite of his ever louder and more persistent knocking. In short, she became a Christian through and through. That is the gift that we received through Gabrielle's suffering as she taught us how to die well. Her longer death gave her the chance to become the most beautiful person I am yet capable of imagining. I wouldn't ordinarily read such an extensive passage in the context of a sermon. But then we live in an unusual moment culturally and historically when the people of God need to combat the nihilism of our own day with a renewed vision of meaning and beauty and purpose that refuses to surrender to the it is lists that love if it is love of any sort that is worth its name, bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13. That is exactly what love has done in the God-man Jesus Christ. And because he has conquered death, we dare not allow the avoidance of suffering somehow to become our greatest and highest priority in life. We were made for more. We were made for communion with the triune God of love who has faithfully shown himself to us in Jesus Christ. And this is the way which has been opened for us by him. Surrounded as we are by chaos and confusion and fear and anger, there is nevertheless a path that will lead us home. Will you walk that path with me and with one another? Let's pray together. Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know that we carry our own fears and dread. And for some of us, we are paralyzed by the fears. But your love is stronger. Your love has overcome every opponent, even death. Plant and nurture in us those seeds of hope that would grow to be pillars of confidence and trust that undergird our efforts to make our way faithfully through this world, faithfully in response to your invitation to the new life that you have planted in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.